My name is Fred. I am one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you're here this morning. I've got a couple of questions for you. Um, here's the first one. Um, it's kind of heavy. We're going to start off a little heavy, all right, but we, we get lighter. Have you ever seen anybody abuse the power that they have? Right? You don't have to watch too many news channels to see that. Um, but even in your own life, have you seen maybe a powerful system that's in place uh, suppress a weaker people, a weaker person? Have you, seen, have you seen a powerful person create a victim out of another person? Even, even as simple as seeing somebody uh, cut somebody off as they're driving down the road, right? That's, that's a, a, an abuse of power. Well, let me, and some of you too, let me just say this, some of you haven't just seen that happen, you've been the recipient of that abuse, right? It hasn't just been something that you've seen, it's been something that you've experienced. And if so, then you know the hurt and the deep pain that comes with that. But, but let, me, let me ask you another question. Have you ever been the one to abuse the power that you have? Have you ever been the one to abuse the power that you have? Before you answer this, let me tell you a little bit about what I mean about power. And power is simply this. Power is the ability to use your affluence to influence someone else, to influence another person. Now, now what I mean by affluence is simply put that something you have that somebody else doesn't, right? And, And we all have a level of affluence, no matter who you are or where you come from, we all have something that somebody else doesn't have. Even if, even if you just look at a family, everybody has a certain level of affluence that they can use uh, for good or that they can take abuse of, that they can serve people with or that they can abuse people with. And, and so you look at a mom or a dad, you look at a parent, their affluence comes from their authority. Right? They're the ones that get to make the rules for the family. And they can, they can do that in a really good way. Like, like, like families have, have rules sometimes about, about the dinner table, that there's no screens at the dinner table. Right? TV's turned off, cell phones are put away, iPads are put away, and it's just time to connect. Now that is a great use of power. But if you're a parent, you also know what it's like to abuse that power because you've come up with rules that don't make any sense, like you're grounded until you're 30. Right? Sometimes there are things that come out of your mouth and you're like, what just happened? Right? If you're a sibling, if you're an older sibling, right? So you got mom and dad, their affluence is authority. Your affluence, if you're the older sibling, is experience. You know how things really work in the family, don't you? And, and, and you know. And you can tell your younger siblings this. If you really want something from mom, ask her after she's had her cup of coffee, not before. Right? That's how you can use experience to help. But you can also abuse that power. You're mad at your little brother or sister. Dad's working on the garbage disposal, which everyone knows that he can't fix except for him. And you say, you know what? When dad's working on stuff that he can't fix, he loves it if we come up and ask a lot of questions. Sweet little brother, why don't you go up and ask him lots of questions right now? And then you just sit back and watch the fireworks. Right? That's an abuse of power. Now, even if you're the youngest one in the family, you have a level of affluence. 
And your affluence comes from the ability to be the tattletale in the family, right? You're the one who makes sure everybody sticks to the rules. And you can run to mom and dad when you see your older brother or sister doing something that they know they shouldn't do, but the only one in the room is you, and you're not going to do anything about it, right? Wrong. You're going to go tell a mom and dad and enforce those rules, and that's actually a good use of power. Now, mom and dads get tired of tattletaling, but the fact of the matter is, parents, if we set the rules and we have a little enforcer, sometimes we need to listen to them. But the problem with tattletaling you can also abuse that power and maybe stretch a little bit what you saw, right? Or make it up, and that's an abuse of power. And, and, and so here's what I'm saying with all of this. With all this, with all this, this is where I'm going. We all have power, right? We all have a certain level of affluence that we can use to influence those around us. And because we all have power, what is also true is we all have abused the power that we have at some level, right? Whether you're a mom or a dad, an older brother, a younger sister, whether you're a a boyfriend or girlfriend, whether you're a, a teacher or a coworker or whatever, we all have the ability to turn this affluence that we have into abuse and to hurt those around us instead of influencing those around us. But today, I want you to be encouraged. Right, because here's what we're going to see today. We're going to see that Jesus is greater than our power. Jesus is greater than our ability to use our affluence to influence those around us. And, and we're going to see that as we pick back up in our series in Hebrews called Greater Than. And y'all, we're in the home stretch. We, we've only got about six weeks left of this series. And, and we're calling this series Greater Than because as we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews, time and time again, we're seeing that Jesus is greater than. He's greater than our ups and downs. He's greater than, than our doubts. He's greater than our fears. He's greater than our failures. And he's even greater than our successes. Over and over and over again, we're seeing how Jesus really is greater than. And today, as we see how he is greater than any power that we have, greater than any affluence that we have to influence others, what we're going to see is that when we acknowledge that there is real power in the power that Jesus gives us, it actually reframes the power that we have, and it creates this power in us that is harder to abuse. Because we understand it comes from a different place. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to do five verses, verses 23 through 28. If you need a Bible, there's some in front of you. And in those Bibles, it's on page 847. Or you can also download the Bible app. uh, And we're in there. If you click on events and click on Fellowship Asheville, everything is there for you. And the scriptures in a place where you can take notes. And and we're in the part of Hebrews where our preacher to this Hebrew congregation, some people call it the Hall of Fame because he's going through the Old Testament and, and he's highlighting people who are heroes of the faith. And and it's important to say of the faith because they're not heroes necessarily because of their own bravery or courage. They're heroes because they had a faith that God would do what only he could do even when everything seemed like he wasn't. And, 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 and that's why this, this preacher to the group of Hebrews is, is highlighting them. And the one that he's gonna highlight that we're talking about today is Moses. 
And he's gonna recount some of Moses' life story. And, and here's why this is important. If you were a Hebrew, now remember, this book called Hebrews is a sermon that was preached to a group of people. Now, we don't know who preached this sermon. We don't know who wrote this sermon down, but we do know that it was preached to a group of Hebrews who came to understand that Jesus was the Messiah that they were waiting for. So these are people who grew up in Jewish homes anticipating the Messiah, and they understood that Jesus was the Messiah that had come that they had been waiting for. And so they're Christians, but they grew up in Jewish homes, which is why this book is full of illustrations from the Old Testament. It's full of of passages from the Old Testament because it wasn't written to us, right? In, In 2018, a bunch of Gentiles, it was written to a, it was preached to a group of Hebrew Jewish believers, and we get to glean wisdom from it because it's God's word. But part of my job is to help connect those dots. Moses is one of those dots. If you grew up in a Jewish home, Moses would have been your hero because in him embodies this person of great power, right? If you were a kid growing up, you wanted to be Moses. You might have even had one of these. You might have had a Moses action figure when you were growing up. You might have had a picture of him on your wall because Moses embodied power. God spoke through Moses. God used Moses to deliver the nation of Israel like like he was a big, big deal. And what we're going to see is that real power. And that's what we're going to talk about today is this real power is power that when Jesus is greater than and we see it in Moses. Let's look at verse 23. So chapter 11, verse 23, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Now remember, in Moses' life, he was, he was born in a time where the nation of Israel was in Egypt, and they were slaves in Egypt. And the Pharaoh had just made this law that when, when Hebrew women gave birth, if they gave birth to a son, that he was to be killed at, at birth. And... Um, the midwives, who were Hebrew women, who were helping women give birth, didn't do that. And they'd go back to the Pharaoh and go, gosh, these women, they just pop the babies out before we even get there. So we can't do anything about it. Moses was born during that time where he should have been killed, but his parents chose a different way. Look at the rest of verse 23. It says, by faith, when Moses was born, was hidden For three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, this term beautiful doesn't mean maybe what's coming to your mind. Moses didn't come out looking like Ryan Gosling, right? He wasn't this this beautiful little baby boy in that sense. In Acts, in the book of Acts, in chapter 7, Paul elaborates on this a little bit and, and says that when they saw him, they saw that he was beautiful in God's sight, is what that means. And so it's not that that he was just a good-looking baby. It's just that his parents looked at him and saw something in him that that was from the Lord. They knew that God had this great plan for this little baby. They didn't know what, but they could tell that God was up to something with this little baby that they held. And here's this first indication of what real power does. Real power sees people the way God sees people, right? Helen Keller 
was this, 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 this child who was born and she was deaf and she was blind. And because she was deaf and because she was blind, she also couldn't speak. But yet by the time she was seven, she learned how to sign 60 different made up signs to communicate with her parents and to communicate with the world around her. And her parents looked at this child, a child that honestly the culture around them would have said was never gonna amount to anything and probably would have ended up in what we would call an asylum in her life. And she would have been medicated and, and, and um, bound for the majority of her life because she was wild, right? Because she couldn't see and she couldn't hear and she was trying to communicate. And when the world saw this wild child, her parents saw a fighter and saw a, a, a person who wants to, to communicate and live in the world that God had placed her in. And so through a chain of events, they introduced her to Ann Sullivan, who taught Helen Keller how to, how to communicate. Even though she was blind and even though she was deaf, taught her sign language and taught her how to communicate. What they didn't know, though, is that they saw something in their child that the world didn't see in their child. And because they saw their child the way God saw their child, they changed the way the world saw their child. Right? Because now, because of Helen Keller, we realize that just because a child is born with special needs doesn't mean that they're to be discarded. Because of those parents and because of Helen Keller, we realize that every child deserves a chance. You see, real power sees people as God sees people. And when we see as God sees, we actually help the world to see. There's a, a ministry that we work with, that we've worked with before in Haiti. In Haiti, I'm gonna talk a little bit about a little bit about our ministry there, but, but Haiti as a country doesn't see children the way God sees children. Um, I have worked with an organization called Mercy and Sharing, um, and what they do is they go find kids with special needs, and they've developed physical therapy. They've developed this whole campus to help rehabilitate kids that really, if they were born in the States, uh, they would have a much better life than they do there. There was one kid in particular who was crippled um, in his legs and his mom had to work. There was no dad in the picture. His mom had to work. She worked 12-hour shifts every day and she had to hike down the mountain to get to work and hike back up the mountain to get, to get home. But no one would care for her child because he was crippled. And so she would literally... And y'all, I say this, there's no judgment on her. She's doing the best that she can. She would take her child and tie him to a tree and put him on a straw mat, and that's where she would leave him for 12 hours because nobody saw this child the way God saw this child except for this organization called Mercy and Sharing. And they met this child and they sat down with this child under a tree for, at that point, mom had already been at work. So they were there for about eight hours just trying to feed the child, trying to get to know the child. He couldn't speak. Um, he was pretty severely handicapped. The mom shows up. They introduce themselves and they say, we can help, which of course is what the mom wanted. 
And so they take the child down the mountain to this, to this rehab facility. And he's been there for, he's probably been there for about four years now. He can walk. Um, he's in a wheelchair so that when he's not in, in therapy and walking, he can actually get around and mobile. Uh, he can communicate now. You see, when we see people the way God sees people, we change how the world sees them. And this is happening all around the world. Look at verse 24. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. When Moses was three months old, his parents put him in a basket and floated him down the Nile, and he landed in the, in the family of the Pharaoh. He landed in the palace and he grew up there and it could have been very easy for Moses to say, I choose this life instead of the life that I came from because this life in the palace, it's kind of nice. Everything I want and everything I need is here. But what was also in the palace was sin and there was this rebellion against God. Moses chose to, to refuse that and to be mistreated with his people who were slaves. And see, here's this other aspect of real power, and that real power identifies with God's people no matter where God has his people, right? Moses chose to identify with his people because they were God's people, even though they were slaves in that same land where he was living as a prince. And here's one way this could look in our day. The organization that we do work with in Haiti is called Poverty Resolutions, and they see people as God sees people. The, the, the nation of Haiti itself, the national religion is voodoo. And, and because of that, there isn't a big value on life, which is why Mercy and Sharing uh, was created and, and to help take care of, of, of people that, that the, the country doesn't see as valuable of care. But because of that, too, there's this systemic issue of poverty. And what Poverty Resolutions is doing, and so when you give to support one of the orphans or when you go on one of the trips, what you're doing is you're not partnering with a generation because they're in poverty. What Poverty Resolutions wants to do is they see this great opportunity in this younger generation to raise up godly leaders into a country. And so they, they have this long view in mind. They don't, they don't want to end poverty, although they do want to do that. That's not their goal. Their goal is to raise up a generation of Christian leaders in the country to change the country, and that'll take 20 to 30 years. But that's their goal. Because you see, they identify with God's people no matter where God has his people. And right now, God has his people in this young generation of children and teenagers who are seeking a better future for that country. And so when we partner with Poverty Resolutions, we're not just partnering with, with them because they're, they're battling poverty, which they are. We're partnering with them because they are partnering with God's people in the country of Haiti and raising up a future generation. But you listen, you don't have to get on a plane and fly three hours there, which by the way, isn't that crazy that it's only like a three-hour flight to the second poorest country in the world? You can step right outside these doors and hang out on this front porch during the week and see it. Right? It is literally this close to us. You can hang out downtown, go to Pritchard Park. And see, church, let me ask you a question. Do you have a hard time identifying with God's people when they're different from you? Because see, real power identifies with God's people no matter where God has his people. 
And if that's difficult for you, let me tell you, you're missing out on, on a piece of heaven. I was in Africa one time on this mission trip, and, and we were in this church that if you took like one of these sections of pews and maybe cut it in half and put cinder blocks around it, this is what the church size was. <clears throat> and and uh, we were singing this song, and if you've ever been in an international setting for worship, you know this experience. They start singing this song in their language, and you're like, wait a second, I know this song. This is mercy me, or this is, you know, like, like, like you've heard it before. And so you start singing it in English, and they're singing it in their, in their language, and it's this beautiful moment where, where every race and tribe and tongue is worshiping the same God, and that's what had happened in this little church. We were singing some song, I can't remember what it was. And, and the Africans were singing it in their language. We were singing it in English. And I just kind of opened my eyes and looked. And there were black and white and brown all singing the same song, all worshiping the same God. And I thought, you know what? This is what heaven's going to be like. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue will be there worshiping God. And when we here on earth Understand that there is real power in connecting with God's people no matter where God has his people. We get a little slice of heaven like that. You see, when God's people, no matter where God has his people or our people, we get a glimpse of heaven, which is what motivated Moses. Look at verse 26. It says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward and by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And so if you know Moses' story, he, um, he, he did identify with the Hebrews and in a not so good way. He, he, he misrepresented the power that he has. And, and there was a time where he took power into his own hands. And because of that, he had to flee from the nation of Egypt and did not get to set the Israelites free. And he was in the desert for 40 years as God was refining him and teaching him how to come under the real power that's found in God. And so, so then God sends him back to Egypt and God uses him through all these plagues and, and all this stuff to, to deliver the nation of Israel. But, but here's the deal. What Moses believed in was that there is this God and he is sending a savior. And what, what, what he knew is that that coming savior who would restore this broken relationship with God, that that coming savior was of greater value than all the wealth in Egypt, which is why he could turn away from that. That the pleasure of that God was far better than the anger of an earthly king, which is why he said, I don't care what Pharaoh says. And because of this coming savior, of his greater worth and greater power, even though Moses couldn't see him, he trusted him. And it's where we see that's the source of this real power because real power, this real power that we've been talking about, that real power is found in trusting Jesus. Because you see, we have access to a power that Moses didn't because Moses just knew the Savior was coming. To him, the Savior was this coming attraction, right? He just saw the movie trailer. 
That's all he saw. We have gotten to see the whole movie. We didn't only go to the theater to see it. We own the DVD and we can watch it on Netflix. Like that's how free our access is to this story. That what he knew as a coming savior, we know has a name and his name is Jesus. And that that invisible God became visible. And he had people that could touch him and know him. And that, and that he came not just to show off who God is, but he came to rebuild what man had broken through our own sin and our own self, selfishness. And that he lived this life that we can't, one of obedience. And in death, he took a punishment that he didn't earn so that we can have a life we don't deserve. That's our gospel. And he took our sins so we can be free and have this good and right and intimate relationship with the God who loves us and the God who created us. And in Jesus, we see what this power looks like. In Jesus, his life, he, he, he had all this power and never once abused it. Now, if you are a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe, you might think he got a little abusive with it, but he didn't, Right? He never once abused his power. Even when every opportunity pointed to this would be a great time, he never did. There was this guy named Pilate who was a Roman official. And what Rome valued more than anything was peace and harmony. And so when this guy Pilate would get his yearly job performance review, it was based on the sole fact, was he able to keep peace in the land? And if he was, he got a promotion, and if he wasn't, he got a demotion. And he's over this place called Jerusalem. And this guy named Jesus is there, and he keeps talking about peace, and he keeps talking about love, and not Roman peace, and not the peace of, of the Caesar, but the peace of God. And that's causing some ruffles in some people's feathers. The Jewish leaders who, who, who were in cahoots with, with Pilate to try to keep everybody calmed down, there was these riots that would break up. And so, so Pilate gets face to face with Jesus and Jesus has already been beaten and he's on his way to the cross. And, and this is his opportunity to, to put Jesus under his thumb and to break him and to say, finally, I can get power back. And he looks at Jesus and he goes, listen, I have a question for you. Where are you from? And Jesus just looks at him in silence. And Jesus didn't answer him because he didn't have to answer him. Because Jesus has real power. And Pilate just thought he had power. Now, Pilate didn't like this, right? Because his job is to keep the peace. And if he can't even get a prisoner to answer his question, he's got to turn up the heat a little bit. Well, look at what Pilate says to Jesus uh, from the book of John. It says, so Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? This word authority means power. As a matter of fact, the King James Version actually translates this as power. And so Pilate looks at Jesus and says, listen, you're not gonna answer me? Seriously, do you know that I have the power to kill you or I have the power to set you free? And Jesus speaks up then. And look at what Jesus says. Because here we see where real power comes from. Jesus answered him and said, you would have no authority. You would have no power over me 
unless it had been given to you from above. And so Jesus looks at him and goes, dude, you think you have power? Any power you have, I gave you. See, that's what real power is. Y'all, my pastor back in Texas would say, y'all, that'll preach right here. Right, because you see, I started off saying we all have power. We all have some level of affluence. We all have some level of affluence to influence those around us, right? And what we see here is that real power understands that any power that I have, that my power is a gift from God. Any affluence you have to influence those around you, no matter how hard you worked, you had nothing to do with it. It is God's gift to you. Any power that you have, any affluence you have to influence others, even if it fell in your lap and you don't deserve it and you haven't earned it, it is a gift from God to you. If you have been given good health, that is a gift of God to you. If you've been given a promotion at work and now you're leading people in your, in your office or in your workplace, that is a gift of God to you. If you have a spouse that you work through life together with, that is a gift of God to you. If you have siblings, that is a gift of God to you. Any affluence you have to influence anybody is a gift of God to you. And when you understand that any power that we have is given to us by God, it changes how we use that power. Instead of ruling over people, we serve people. And y'all, this isn't just a church idea. I mean, it, it is a church idea, but companies have caught on to this. Home, Home Depot has taken their staff structure. So if you take an organizational chart and the typical organizational chart like at Home Depot starts with, you got the cashiers that work in the stores, you got the associates that work in the stores, you've got the assistant managers, you've got the managers, you've got department managers, and it builds this pyramid all the way up to the top where you have the executive team and leading that executive team is you've got the CEO and it starts with one person. What that CEO did, who by the way, the CEO at that time was a believer, is he took that organizational chart and he flipped it upside down and he goes even though everything comes up to me my role is to serve everybody else on this on this organizational chart my job is not to to influence authority over them but my job is to serve them and so so when you looked at that home depot organizational chart it was turned upside down instead of right side up because that's what real power does it's the, it's the captain of the football team who realizes his job isn't to be the star of the team. His job is to serve the team and to make them the star. It's the, it's the coworker who, who realizes their job isn't to be the one that everybody caters to, but their job is to cater to everybody else so they can be a success. You see, no matter how big or, or how small your power may be, when, when you see it as a gift from God, it changes how you use it. And when we understand that our power is this gift from God, it makes it a little easier not to abuse it. But let's be honest. Sometimes we forget, right? Sometimes we forget that the power we have 
the affluence that we've been given to influence those around us. Sometimes we forget that that's a gift from God and we do hurt people with it. We do abuse it. And see, this gospel that I just talked about, which allows us to have this intimate relationship with the God who loves us and the God who creates us, that gospel allows us to go to him when we find ourselves abusing the power that God has given us. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, Fred, you have no idea what I've done with the power that God has given me. You have no idea the depths to which I've hurt people, the depths to which I've made victims out of people who were innocent, just so I could get the glory instead of God get the glory. You have no idea what I've done. There's no way God will open up his arms to me. Well, let me tell you, sweet friend, you are not that powerful. There is nothing that you have done where God will not open his arms up to you and welcome you because of what Jesus has done. When I lose my temper with my kids, that gospel allows me to rest in the complete forgiveness of God. That when he died for my sins, he didn't die for just the ones I have already committed. He died for the ones I will commit. And that forgiveness is sure. And because I have that sure forgiveness, I can go to my kids and seek their forgiveness. I can tell them, Daddy lost his temper. Will you forgive me? When I wrong a coworker, because I want to be served instead of serve. I can rest in that secure forgiveness from God and go seek forgiveness from them and make things right. When I hurt a spouse or a friend by abusing my power, I can trust in God's forgiveness and seek reconciliation. That's what that gospel does. And so for you, if, 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 if you're a person who has never believed in that gospel before, that, that you think church has been about what you do and what you don't do, let me tell you, that is a great religion, but it's really hard to keep up. That is not Christianity. Christianity is about a relationship, and in a relationship, you make mistakes and you learn. That's what Christianity is, and, and, and that is what our gospel is, that Jesus has died for our sins, and you know what he expects you to do? He expects you to make mistakes. That's why he died for us, and, and, and if you have never said yes to Jesus, let today be the day that you say yes to him, and you come to him receiving that forgiveness. But for those of you who have done that, for those of you who have said yes to Jesus, let me tell you that same gospel, that Jesus died and was resurrected so that you can have a good and right and intimate relationship with the God who loves you and created you, you still need that gospel because your, 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 your heart and your soul is geared to think that you still have to perform for God to be happy with you. And you still have to earn that forgiveness by being good enough or not being bad enough. But the reality is you can never be good enough, nor can you ever be bad enough. Because what Jesus has done covers it. And when you abuse that power, you can still turn to God because of that gospel. And so the question for us is to whom have we abused our power? 
Who is it that you've overstepped your bounds? Is it your spouse? Is it your siblings? Is it a friend? Is it a coworker? Because we have this gospel and because our forgiveness is sure in Jesus, we can go to them and seek forgiveness from them and seek reconciliation from them and tell them, listen, I, I messed up. I was thinking about me instead of thinking about you and here's what I did. Will you forgive me for that? Because let me show you what God does when you understand that your power is his power. In verse 28, it says, By faith he, being Moses, kept a Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now, like I said, Moses, God used Moses to set the, the Israelites free from Egypt and he used these plagues to do it and And the last plague was the death of the firstborn. And so what Moses did is he told his people to tell all the people, if you have a person, if you have a person who has said yes to Jesus, to walk in obedience, uh, said yes to God, to walk in obedience with him, what you need to do is sacrifice a lamb and sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorpost because tonight the the angel of death is gonna come through the land of Egypt. And if that blood isn't sprinkled on your doorpost, then he will come into your house and he will take your firstborn and it will be horrific and it will be awful. And what's interesting is the, (laughs) the pharaoh, I declared that every child would be gone and the way to freedom was rebellion. But when God said that he was gonna take the firstborn, the way to freedom was obedience. And that's what they did. And that night, there was wailing and weeping in the nation of Egypt because not everybody believed that God would do what he said he was gonna do. But for those who did, there was rejoicing. And that moment was the moment that the nation of Israel got their freedom and got their deliverance because they understood where real power came from. You see, real power gives freedom. And so do you need that kind of freedom today? If so, realize that your power is God's gift. Any affluence you have to influence those around you is God's gift to you. And let that be freedom for you. And when you abuse that power, which we all will and you will, and you might do it before you leave this building today, you will for sure do it on the car ride home because you probably did it on the car ride here. Realize that that is an opportunity to enjoy the freedom that God has given you in forgiveness and to apologize, confess, repent, and seek reconciliation. I'm gonna tell you why this is important too because if I asked you, when I asked you, who have you abused your power to? If there was a name that came to your mind or a picture of someone that came into your head, next week we have communion. And part of communion is, one of the the mandates about communion is that if you know you have hurt somebody, if you know you have offended somebody, not that they've just been offended by what you've done, but you have hurt them and you have offended them, before you take communion, you're supposed to go to them and seek reconciliation. You're supposed to go to them and say, I'm sorry I did this, will you forgive me? They don't have to forgive you, that's not the deal. The deal is you have to walk humbly with the Lord and humbly before them and confess your sin and repent of it before you come to the table. We have communion in seven days, six and a half actually. 
You've got six and a half days for that person that came into your mind, that picture that popped into your head, to send them an email, to make a phone call, to FaceTime them, or set up a time with coffee and confess your abuse of power to them and to ask for forgiveness. That's why this is real. Because next Sunday, we're gonna be having communion. And if there's somebody that the Lord has laid it on your heart, he's laid it on your heart to be free. Let's pray.